0: I know what he was and what he did. And it's hard for me to imagine that he didn't create Neverland with at least the expectation that he would have that kind of opportunity.
1: This is Ron Zonin, the prosecutor in the 2005 criminal trial against Michael Jackson.
0: Now, whether he created it for the sole purpose of being able to sexually abuse children, who knows? Um, but he certainly created a little paradise for himself where he would be able to do what he did with relative impunity. I mean, it was far removed from any police department. He had his own security people who, who were very loyal to him and would just turn away. Um, he had maids who knew that uh, he was showering with children and sleeping with them. And, um, and nobody blew the whistle.
1: From Luminary Media... And Ninth Planet Audio. This is Telephone Stories. Episode Three Second Star to the Right.
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
3: Hey, Bubba. Omar.
1: Omar Crook, Telephone Stories co-producer.
3: Dude, should I call you Bubba or just Brandon? Which do you prefer?
1: I mean, it's a good question. You know me as Bubba, most people do from my childhood, and my whole family calls me Bubs. Uh, same with all the customers at the restaurant. But my adult name is Brandon, I guess pen name to sound like a douche. Do, uh, but so I don't know. You can call me whatever you want. Do people call you by your last name, like Crook? Like, yo, Crook, what's up? Yeah, usually
3: just Crook. No, man, just yeah. Omar. Come on. It's crazy. I mean,
1: you did get the short end of the stick with that last name. <laughs> it's crook. That... Crook Listen, it's
3: an English name, and it means that we live at the crook of the river, all right? I know, and I get it that Omar doesn't go with that either. I know it doesn't help, yeah. so.
1: Yeah, it's like a 1940s
3: villain name
1: like they finally captured the scoundrel Omar Crook the <laughs> communist spy with his menacing beady eyes get him see <laughs> you know og- ogborn though is also named after a river oh it's it is wales like uh, the ogden river so porn of og really so we're we're river dwellers we could like. be
3: from we could just be from down the river from one another
1: i could have been all
3: right so <laughs> anyway back to planet earth man i'm call i was calling because you know, I was thinking about um, where, where we're going, and I kind of feel like we're missing a part of the narrative about okay. Michael Jackson, you know? How so? So, I mean, there's the background on Michael Jackson as a cultural phenomenon, and it's one thing to just say it, but I think I kind of feel to really understand it is a whole different thing. Like, how do we get from A to B? Um, going from Jackson's upbringing being A. And then what's B? Well, his... Befriending of children, number one, from dysfunctional families and allegedly molesting children from dysfunctional families. How do we get there?
1: Yeah, I guess I haven't really considered that, you know, that idea. But pretty much all of Michael's accusers are sort of from broken homes in a way.
4: Michael Jackson's family is as every bit as dysfunctional as many of these families are, with the exception of their ability to melt, you know, to make... Stars, you know, they they did bring the discipline to you know making this uh, star group, but in terms of the inner dynamics of this family, good God, um, you know, so let's not be smug um, about this. Okay, who's this? I'm Margot Jefferson, and I am a critic and memoirist.
1: Margot Jefferson won a Pulitzer Prize for her work as a critic at the New York Times. Her memoir, Negro Land won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She is also a professor of writing at Columbia University School of the Arts.
3: Holy smokes, man. That's awesome. Yeah, Mr. Opera
1: Singer. You think I'm bringing a bunch of clowns on for this project? (laughs)
3: Shit. Oh, come on. I was just, you know. Better kiss my ass. (laughs) Dude, I'm just impressed. That's all. It's
1: amazing. Well, you should be impressed because Margot Jefferson also wrote this book called On Michael Jackson, and it's... It's spectacular. It's this little—I don't know what to call it. It's like this slim deciphering of Jackson as a cultural, you know, I don't know. Jefferson herself would say it's
4: cultural criticism—a um, uh, you know, book-length essay um, on him as a as a phenomenon, as an as an artist, but uh, as this cult set of cultural conundrums and contradictions and and um, you know, flashpoints, really. You know, wherever there were things people, the culture was anxious about or obsessed with, Michael Jackson was there.
1: Famously, Michael Jackson's origins began within the confines of a family band, an idea first proposed by his father, Joseph Jackson. According to the New York Times, Joseph Jackson was born in 1928 in Fountain Hill, Arkansas. He was the oldest of five children, and when his parents divorced, he moved with his father to Oakland, California. Soon though, his father, a schoolteacher whom Joseph described as a strict disciplinarian, remarried, and Joseph moved back in with his mother and siblings in East Chicago, Indiana, a rough, industrial town. Joseph described himself as a lonely child, and he never finished high school, taking a job as a crane operator for Inland Steel. It was during this time that he became a Golden Gloves boxer and met 17-year-old Catherine Scruce at a party. They were immediately attracted to each other. Joseph formed a band called the Falcons with his brother Luther on guitar. They performed Otis Redding and Chuck Berry covers at local clubs and colleges, but they never landed a record deal and soon broke up.
4: In the ugliest kind of sense, Playboy. I mean, there were mistresses, there was another family, there was all of that. So, yeah. You know, I, I sound very harsh. <laughs> it's a terrible family. Um, and both of them, Joseph and Catherine, were culpable, um, in their opposing, really kind of grotesquely gender fixed, you know, like beyond caricature roles.
1: Katherine Scruce, also known as Caddy, or Kate, was also born in the South, in Barber County, Alabama. Her childhood home was about 10 miles away in a town called Rutherford, which no longer exists. There, she recalls in her autobiography, My Family, the Jacksons, people rode on horseback to get their mail, traded eggs for stamps, pumped their water, and used kerosene lamps. Her father worked for the Seminole Railroad, He was also a tenant cotton farmer, as were her grandfather and great-grandfather. The Scruce's ancestors were slaves, and her great-great-grandfather, Kendall Brown, adopted his slave owner's name, as was common at the time. He sang every Sunday morning in church, and Catherine Jackson writes in her book, his voice would ring out above all the others during Sunday services in the Little Wooden Church he attended in nearby Russell County. His voice was so strong that in the summer, when they threw open the wooden windows, it rang throughout the valley in which the church was nestled. Maybe, she writes, singing talent is in our blood. As a toddler, Catherine contracted polio. She survived, but was in and out of hospitals for much of her youth. And it wasn't until she was 16 that she was without crutches or braces. She was left with a noticeable limp. She yearned to be an actress, or a country singer, and she looked to make her mark as a teenager when her father uprooted the family for Indiana, where work in the steel mills attracted many poor black families from the South. In East Chicago, Indiana, at age 17, Catherine met Joseph Jackson and quickly fell for his charm, quick wit, and strong personality. They wed in 1949, relocated to the neighboring town of Geary, and soon had a large family. Maureen, also known as Rebby, born in 1950. Jackie, in 1951. Tito, in 53. Jermaine, in 54. LaToya, 56. Marlon, in 57. Marlon was born as a twin. His twin brother, Brandon, died within 24 hours of being born. The next year, 1958, brought Michael, followed by Randy, in 1961, and finally, Janet, in 1966. Margot Jefferson writes that when times were tough, Catherine worked a part-time job at Sears, but the bulk of her time was spent at home, raising nine children. In 1963, while at home, Catherine answered the door to a Jehovah's Witness, who offered her the promise of peace and salvation. Catherine read the literature, Awake, or The Watchtower, and soon committed herself to the structures of a faith that refuses blood transfusions and military service and does not observe Easter, Christmas, or birthdays because of their non-biblical origins. The witnesses forbade women from leadership positions and emphasized the place of men as unquestioned rulers of the home, ideas that echoed Catherine's experience. According to Jefferson, while Joseph spent his days at the steel mill and nights philandering, Catherine was at home studying religious literature or singing country songs that she grew up with to the children. Soon, the kids themselves began to play instruments. Joseph did not approve. His own musical ambitions had been shattered, and he instructed his boys never to touch his guitar once he'd put it away for good. According to Jackson family lore, he realized he'd been disobeyed when he came home one night and found a string on the instrument broken. This event was dramatized in the 1992 ABC miniseries, The Jacksons, An American Dream.
0: Who did this? broke the string of my guitar. Who? who did this, huh? Who did this?
2: I didn't do it. God, 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 swear to God. Believe me. Then who? You.
1: In the miniseries, after whipping Tito relentlessly with a belt, Joseph, played by the brilliant Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, bullies his son into performing for the family.
2: Boys, come on out here. Come on! Joe, it's so late. Would you let him get some sleep, please? I want them to hear this.
0: The whole family I want to get to the bottom of this. And I don't care how late it is. I'm going to invite Tito to play for me. And you better not mess up, boy.
1: Catherine Jackson, played by Angela Bassett, chimes in.
2: The boys have been practicing, Jim. They've got real talent.
1: And that's where the legend of the Jackson Five was born. Joseph, the abuser, Catherine, the shoulder to cry on, and the children, an indentured chorus to their father's forgotten dreams. Author, Margot Jefferson.
4: Catherine was a pious enabler. Um, Okay, you know, she was the one who bathed their little wounds after they got beaten. Um, You know, she was the gentle-voiced one, but she let it happen. She let all of it happen. Michael Jackson was quoted as saying years ago, he said, you know, the only one in my family I trust is Catherine, and sometimes I'm not so sure about her.
1: Michael Jackson later wrote in his autobiography, Moonwalk, that upon learning their talents, Joseph began to train his boys to perform. When they made mistakes during rehearsals, he whipped them with a belt.
4: Joe Jackson was, you know, not only the stage, the monster, the stage parent as the kind of monster we know that, um, but he seems to have been something of a sadist.
1: The Jackson Five was formed in 1964. In 1966, they won a talent contest at Theater Roosevelt High School the alma mater of Jackie and Rebbe, and the site of the same swimming pool where Catherine was baptized when she gave her spirit over to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They won more contests and toured the so-called Chitlin Circuit, a series of African-American performance venues, including the upper echelon black theaters, such as the Apollo Theater in Harlem and the Regal in Chicago, doing covers of Motown hits like the Temptations' My Girl, They traveled relentlessly, piled together, sleeping in the car, or in cramped motel rooms while the girls remained at home with their long-suffering mother. During touring, according to author J. Randy Terborelli's account of Jackson's rise to fame in his book, Michael Jackson, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, the older Jackson brothers often had sex with fans, while the young Michael, who had replaced Jermaine as the band's lead singer, was instructed to play asleep and listen to their sounds in the dark. Another writer, Randall Sullivan, recalls in his biography, Untouchable, The Strange Life and Tragic Death of Michael Jackson, an incident where a 14-year-old Michael was locked in a hotel room with two hookers at the urging of his father and brothers who had been ridiculing Michael over his sexuality. They told him to get in there and do it. According to Sullivan, the boy began to read passages from the Bible to the prostitutes, who left the room shaken, and Michael himself was left in tears. There are stories that Joseph Jackson himself would take part in sex with the fangirls, sometimes when his own sons were finished. Years later, other forms of parental disregard and abuse would be lodged at Joseph from within his own family.
2: We called it a highly dysfunctional family, although on the surface it seemed like the American dream. Yes, of course, naturally, in our family, because that was always that facade up there, smiling in front of the cameras, but when we got home it was totally different. We lived an entirely different lifestyle at home.
1: Here is LaToya Jackson on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee in 1991 to promote her book, LaToya, Growing Up in the Jackson Family.
2: And it's a very sad story because Ruby. is a wonderful person, I must say. And she left home at a very young age. She left home when she was, I think it was 16 years old. And the reason she left is because my father would get out of the bed with my mother and he would get in the bed with Reby. And my mother, my, Reeby would ask my mother, please, mother, get help for him. And she wouldn't, she would not. So Reeby had to leave home. There were times, of course, when my mother would say, Joe, not tonight, leave her alone, let her rest, don't get in the bed with her.
1: A moment later in the segment, Kathy Lee asked her,
2: but what about you, Latoya? Did he sexually abuse yes, you? Yes, he did. Very badly. Yes. Do you think he did, Janet? I don't know. She's never spoken about it. I certainly hope he didn't.
1: The Jackson family denied Latoya's accusations at the time, and she later expressed regret over her crucifying portrait of her father, eventually reconciling with the family.
4: You know, it's certainly been, well, Latoya Jackson um, said that Joe sexually abused her and the older sister, Rebby. Um, you know, we just don't know what else was going
1: on. According to Margot Jefferson's telling, as the Jackson boys toured looking for a record deal, Joseph would book last-minute gigs at strip clubs for extra cash. There, as part of the act, Michael would crawl under the tables looking for change on the floor and pull up women's skirts, much to the audience's delight. It was an almost vaudevillian bit, and Michael was the consummate child performer. In a recent interview with me, Margot Jefferson talks about Michael Jackson as a child performer and as a show business pick, which she explains is short for pickaninny, which today is an exceedingly offensive term.
2: Little pickaninny listen to the tale of a place that I know. It's twice as high as the moon. You get there in a balloon. Haven't you been told the place where the good little pick and he's gone? Little black
4: children ones who ones would know. often dance um, with white, grown white vaudevillians, particularly women. Um, Bilbo Jangles Robinson, um, as a little boy, started his career as a pick. Um, and in a, in a strange way, you could see very little, very young and little little Michael you know, within the Motown family, even though it was an all-black family, you know, fulfilling that role.
1: After winning a series of talent shows in the mid-60s, the Jackson Five performed as openers for Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. Taylor encouraged them to audition for Motown Records in Detroit. A 16 millimeter black and white film of the audition was sent to Motown president Barry Gordy, who was in Los Angeles at the time. In it, a tiny Michael Jackson glides across the floor of the audition room moving like a young James Brown.
4: So this is what does make him brilliant as a performer to, um, you know, this, this range of performatively brilliant, aggressive styles. You know, he as a boy, his first Loves were James Brown and Jackie Wilson, who are two, you know, tremendous but by no means identical, um, you know, performers um, of aggression and seduction and, um, you know, kind of overpowering um, intensity. Barry
1: Gordy was convinced and assigned Motown executive Suzanne DePass to make over the group, which finalized their contract in 1969. The boys. And Joseph were soon whisked off to Hollywood, and their careers went into high gear under the Motown label. Upon arriving in LA, they made their first appearance on national television on October 16, 1969, with The Hollywood Palace, hosted by the soon to be solo Diana Ross with The Supremes, who famously took Michael under her wing.
2: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Hollywood Palace. It's wonderful to return as your hostess again. Especially tonight, when I have the pleasure of introducing a great young star who has been in the business all of his life. He's worked with his family, and when he sings and dances, he lights up the stage. Here he is, Michael Jackson in The Jackson Five.
1: The following year, their first four singles became number one hits. I Want You Back, The Love You Save, I'll Be There, and ABC. ABC. This was a feat unmatched by any other group, according to Barry Gordy in his foreword to Michael Jackson's book, Moonwalk. Their hit, ABC, even knocked the Beatles' Let It Be out of the number one spot on the Billboard charts that year the first blow in a complicated battle with Beatles singer Paul McCartney. When the Jackson Five appeared on Dick Clark's American Bandstand on February 21st, 1970, they were already a national sensation. Soon, Joseph Jackson purchased a rambling property in the Encino neighborhood, part of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, called Havenhurst. Havenhurst has been called the original Neverland, not for being the first compound for the Jackson family, but for its mock Tudor style of architecture. It had a Disneyland feel to it, with an old-fashioned ice cream parlor and cartoonish decorative touches. Instead of the Peter Pan myth that Michael Jackson would later overwork for his own property, the imagery and signage of Havenhurst recalled the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. While living together in the compound during the 70s, the Jackson children appeared in many variety shows. In 1976, they even had their own variety series, which lasted 12 episodes.
0: It's the Jackson! Starring Michael, Marlon, Tito, and special guest star, Sonny Bono!
1: The Jackson Five went by the Jacksons at this point, having left Motown to sign with Epic Records. Something Joseph orchestrated in order to wrangle creative control and more money from publishing rights away from Barry Gordy. Jermaine, though, stayed behind, trying to make it as a solo artist while breaking away from the family effort. One of his first hits was "Let's Be Young Tonight" from
2: 1975. Let's
1: Michael be Jackson too had some moderate success as a solo artist in the nineteen seventies. He released four albums for Motown, Got to Be There and Ben in 1972, Music in Me in seventy three, and finally Forever Michael in nineteen seventy five. But in nineteen seventy nine he struck gold. Rather, Platinum, eight times
2: over.
1: Off the Wall was a brilliant amalgamation of soft rock, funk, and disco sound, and was the first of several collaborations with producer Quincy Jones. The album featured the hits Rock With You and Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, the latter of which gave Jackson his first career Grammy win for Best R&B Vocal Performance by a Male. Nothing, though, could prepare the music industry, his fans, or the world for his 1982 album, Thriller. Thriller. Omar, it's your primal Michael Jackson memory. Something I never noticed because I was re-watching the Thriller video released in 83. There's this disclaimer by Michael Jackson at the top. It says, due to my strong personal convictions, I wish to stress that this film in no way endorses a belief in the occult. Yeah, man. I totally
3: remember that. What was that?
1: Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, he apologized to them for making the video and said he'd never make anything like that again. So my guess is he retroactively put in that disclaimer because the L.A. Times quoted him saying the exact same thing in the uh, Jehovah's uh, Witnesses' Awake magazine. Yeah, man, but the Thriller video, come on.
2: Are you all right? away! Yeah.
1: It, it's incredible. It's, I mean, it's like the send up of hodgepodge 1950s camp. The female characters relegated to just screaming and running. There's several fake endings. It's narrated by Vincent Price. Michael Jackson is a werewolf and then a zombie. And then that incredible dance at the end,
3: the thriller dance.
1: Yeah. I mean, they still do it in Chicago. <laughs> I had a an actress friend who like led the thriller rehearsals for the dance every like Halloween in Chicago. It's like a parade. But yeah, that dance helped the album set the Guinness Book of World's Records for the best-selling album of all time. It was also the first album to become the 30-time multi-platinum winner, and it's like a 33-time multi-platinum winner now. It's the biggest album of all time.
3: Well, listen, you know, as much as I love Michael Jackson, it's actually not the biggest album of all time now.
1: Wait, what is?
3: The Eagles' Greatest Hits. Holy shit.
1: (laughs) But in 82, 83, this is what we're talking about. Michael Jackson at the top of his game. The obsessions, the crowds, the fame. With the success of Thriller, Jackson's persona began to encapsulate a kind of duality in both his songs and public appearances. Jackson as the damsel in distress, and on the other side of the coin, depending on your view, either the hero or the monster in the cave. And he deliberately set out to present himself as strange and intriguing. Here, in a rare 1983 interview, he's seated next to Quincy Jones and holding one of his giant pet snakes named, no joke, Muscles.
0: How long have you had this beautiful beast? <laughs> Gosh, I was doing uh, a little
2: bit before Thriller I had, it. probably about almost a year, almost a year now. I've always had boa constrictors been amazed by snakes. You've always had them? Oh, yeah, through the years.
0: She has a lot of animals. A llama.
2: Yeah, I love animals.
1: If you're looking for Freudian and Jungian symbols of masculine and feminine unconscious, you can't do much better than a demure Michael Jackson in 1983 holding a frigging boa constrictor.
4: And often when he's giving an interview, what you hear is the sweetness and light You know, religious piety.
1: Author and critic Margot Jefferson.
4: Um, This combination of an almost Victorian womanhood. Oh, I just, I love children, I love nature. Then when he performs, he has access um, to this other side.
1: This other side Jackson accessed beast, snake, werewolf, or wild man would become solidified in the minds of audiences with the televised celebration Motown 25. Yesterday, Today, Forever, which was taped in front of a live audience on March 25th and then aired on May 16th, 1983 on NBC. The event, produced by former Jackson 5 manager Suzanne De Pass, took place at the old Pasadena Civic Auditorium. If you grew up on Motown like I did, even though I was an 80s baby, it was a buffet of delights. Yes, there was a reunion of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Yes, there was a spectacular battle of the bands between the Four Tops and the Temptations. Yes, the closing number was amazing and featured a stage full of every Motown musical hero hugging Barry Gordy, and then also, weirdly, Richard Pryor. But the main event was mid-performance. It was after a medley with the now fully adult Jackson 5. After the montage of J5 hits ended, the brothers took to the wings, leaving Michael to pace the stage, his outfit sparkling in the spotlight. Thank you.
2: Thank you. He then
1: declared to the audience that he was officially on some new yeah, those,
2: shit. I have to say, those were the good old days. I love those songs. Uh, those were magic moments with all my brothers, including Jermaine. But, uh, you know, th- those were good songs. I I like those songs a lot, but especially, I like the new songs.
3: Dude, I love Billie Jean so much. I had
1: this Motown documentary on VHS tape and I would rewatch this performance. Over and over and over. I was obsessed with it.
3: Well, get this. I saw it live. And I was, I remember I was like in my early, t- I was a kid. And I, when he did the moonwalk, dude, I went bananas. I, oh my I, God. seriously, Wait, I so jumped up. You were up. in
1: the auditorium or you watched it on No, TV? no, no.
3: I mean, I was on TV, but I was, I was in my living room. And I remember jumping up and just literally running around the coffee table like an like a dog going and, crazy. Yeah, and I like immediately was like, I have
1: to learn the moonwalk.
3: Yeah, yeah, I never yeah. could. I I still can't. I never could. I know.
1: I well, I thought that Michael Jackson invented the moonwalk. Yeah but he did not. What? No, he just kind of immortalized it. It was already appearing in breakdancing and stuff in the seventies. But even before that, this guy, Bill Bailey, this African-American tap dancer from the 40s and 50s, did what they called um, back then the backslide. So there's this earlier filmed appearance of him at the Apollo in Harlem and from this musical film in 1955 called the Rhythm and Blues Review. And there he performs it. It's like it's the moonwalk. It's a little slower, but it's the same exact thing performed uh, by Michael Jackson.
0: Freddie, open the curtains, and let's bring on Bill Bailey. Take me all home, man.
3: Well, I had dude, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Um yeah.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds
3: Okay, so after that, um, you know, that Motown show um, in 83, I kind of feel like that's when Michael Jackson really broke away and became uh, like a superstar.
1: He did, but this is not exactly where he became a superstar on his own. The moonwalk moment was not truly when Michael Jackson broke free from the confines of his family. It would take more time than that. First came the 1984 Victory Tour by the Jacksons. As the brothers performed on that tour, it was painfully obvious that Michael had become the main event. Other than playing a few hits from their Motown days and a couple of songs from Jermaine's solo efforts, the brothers were essentially relegated to performing as Michael Jackson's backup band and often simply his backup dancers, as they played the bangers from Off the Wall and Thriller. All in all, the Victory Tour was a disaster. In fact, it's a list of failures in finance, communication, and ego. According to Entertainment Weekly and other sources, Brother Jackie injured his leg and couldn't perform. Tensions mounted with Michael traveling in a private jet, and the others relegated to commercial planes. Michael refused to rehearse with his brothers, so they didn't play any of the numbers from the Victory album. By the end, the brothers were all staying on different floors of the same hotels. At Dodger Stadium, Michael Jackson announced suddenly that this would be the last time the Jacksons would ever perform together, much to the surprise of his brothers, who were hoping for a European leg of the tour. Biographer Tara Borelli writes that Don King, who was one of the many promoters for the Victory Tour, was so dismayed and angered by Michael Jackson's behavior in abruptly canceling the tour that he called Michael the N-word. Like, a lot.
3: No. Yes. What did he say exactly? Quote,
1: there's no way Michael Jackson should be as big as he is and treat his family the way he does. What Michael's got to realize is that Michael's, uh, beep work oh my god no yeah, he goes on it doesn't matter how great he can sing and dance i don't care that he can prance he's one of the megastars of the world but he's still gonna be a beep warp mega megastar can well, you believe that
3: no uh well yeah i mean considering where we are now we definitely have a different bar for uh, what decency is but it sounds like don king was ahead of his time that's for sure
1: yeah, um something else I found almost as interesting was that during the victory tour, according to the LA Times, Jackson was out proselytizing for the Jehovah's Witnesses on tour stops.
3: Like going door to door?
1: Yeah, can you imagine? Oh. He stopped in Birmingham Alabama and in Dallas it was reported
3: oh dude you know I don't know if you know this but I always invite them in I love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses oh my god I
1: bet you do you are such a strange person there's a temple right around the corner from me and as soon as I see them walking down the street it's like all the windows are drawn
3: wait so he would go around dressed like just Michael Jackson going door to door no
1: what he had he wore a dark hat a gray suit and a drooping mustache it says
3: of what a drooping
1: mustache, what do you I mean? I don't know what a drooping mustache is, but that's what it says. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine, like, what would be more bizarre, having Michael Jackson circa 1984 come to your door with literature for you to read, or Michael Jackson with a drooping mustache?
3: Yeah, that's a lot to unpack.
1: Yeah, it's a lot to unpack. While the disastrous Victory Tour was going on, something else was happening in Michael Jackson's business affairs. He began negotiating to purchase the Beatles' song catalog. The genesis of the idea began at a dinner with Paul McCartney and his wife Linda in their home while Michael was in London to record with McCartney his composition, Say, Say, Say. One night, McCartney showed Jackson a thick notebook filled with song titles, according to a story by Robert Hilburn in the Los Angeles Times. As he leafed through the pages, Jackson became excited and peppered McCartney with questions. How do you buy them? What do you do with them after you have them? McCartney explained that buying song catalogs was the way to make big money. For Jackson, the seed had been planted. When he returned to California, he contacted his lawyer and business manager, John Branca, and told him he wanted to start purchasing song rights. Branca began researching what songs might be available, and in September 1984, While the Victory Tour was well underway, Branca told Jackson that the Beatles' song catalog was on the market. Jackson told Branca to start negotiating. Back in the 1960s, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were two young and suddenly successful songwriters who were facing big tax problems. One solution, they were told, was to form a public corporation to hold their song rights. It was a good idea at the time but the Beatles ended up losing the rights to their songs when the company was bought out by ATV Music. Over the years, McCartney had tried to buy back the rights, but the deals always fell through. In August of 1985, after 10 months of intense and complex negotiations, Jackson purchased the bulk of the Beatles songs along with the rights to all the nearly 4,000 songs in the catalog for $47.5 million. McCartney, Although he hadn't been in the bidding, felt like the rug had been pulled out from under him. Although he and the John Lennon estate still received royalties for the songs, Jackson, as publisher, got the bulk of the royalties and, more importantly, controlled how the songs were used in movies, commercials, and other enterprises. Among the songs in the catalog? Let It Be, the 1970s single that the Jackson 5 hit, ABC, had knocked out of the number one spot. Also, yesterday, the McCartney ballad that Michael Jackson at the time said was his favorite Beatles song. The whole deal showed a different side of Michael, that he could be a ruthless, hard-nosed businessman when the situation called for it. Another item that wasn't discussed on the Victory Tour was Michael Jackson's recent injury sustained during the filming of a Pepsi commercial on January 27, 1984, at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. That day, the commercials director, Bob Garaldi had been shooting rehearsal footage since 9 in the morning to prepare for the concert footage of the Jackson brothers performing in front of 3,000 fans. Tito Jackson had acted as a stand-in for Michael, who arrived and was finally ready to film at 6.30 that evening. According to The Telegraph and other reports, the Jackson brothers had been practicing camera blocking while Michael took a bathroom break before filming was to begin. Soon, a shriek was heard and people rushed into the bathroom to find that Michael had accidentally dropped his sequined glove into the toilet. A stagehand soon fished it out and a hairdryer was applied to speed the process and hurry Michael to set. The brothers gave five different takes of their performance for an audience, with Michael leading in the song. In mid-performance, on the sixth take, pyrotechnic devices went off, including a magnesium explosive just two feet away from Michael Jackson's head. Not noticing yet the heat and the thick black smoke emanating from the back of his scalp and engulfing his hair, Michael continued down a small staircase to the stage, dancing, doing one, two, three turns. As he reached the bottom of the steps, the smoke had turned into a flame and the crowd gasped. Michael tried to pull his jacket off. Within seconds, A group of stagehands rushed to his aid and rolled him over to snuff out the flames. Okay, Uh, Michael Jackson was injured
0: this evening at the Shrine Auditorium while uh, filming a commercial. He was uh, uh, working with some explosive devices and also smoke, and a mishap occurred. He sustained a burn, which is about the size of your palm, to the back of his head. He was initially transferred to Cedar sinai Medical Center, uh, where he was examined,
1: and we transferred him to Brotman Medical Center burn unit. He's in
0: stable and good condition at this time.
1: The burns on Jackson's scalp took multiple surgeries over the years and left Jackson using hair pieces to cover the bald spot from the scarring. While recovering from that injury, it was often said Jackson first began his relationship with prescription drugs. His multiple cosmetic surgeries over the years kind of rolled into the injuries sustained in the fire, with Jackson often attributing any operation, nose job, chin implant, another nose job, To the health necessities of his new condition as a burn survivor. He argued that these surgeries were medically necessary, but to others, his physical transformation in tandem to the strange mystique that Jackson cultivated in the tabloids seemed freakish. It was all part of a playbook of sorts. In 1986, Jackson gave a copy of a book about P.T. Barnum to his PR man, Frank DeLeo, and his lawyer and business manager, John Branca, who to this day is co-executor of the Jackson estate. According to Tara Borelli's account, Jackson said of the P.T. Barnum biography, This is going to be my Bible, and I want it to be yours. I want my whole career to be the greatest show on earth. Jackson once directed Frank DeLeo to stage and orchestrate the release of pictures of him sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber to the National Enquirer. The story made news around the world and gave an illusion of Jackson as a science fiction mystery man. Did he really sleep in it nightly so that he could extend his life to 150 years? Then, there was Jackson's campaign to purchase the skeleton of Joseph Merrick, the so-called Elephant Man. Again, Jackson's interest seemed otherworldly, in this case, ghoulish, and it connected him with the sideshow culture that he now increasingly seemed to crave.
4: We know now the celebrated story of his finding Barnum's autobiography and passing it around to his staff. And, you know, I want my act to be my life to be the greatest acting show business or whatever the exact quote was. Um, he was a very canny um, processor of, and manipulator and um, impresario and director of his own career.
1: Jackson capitalized on a sense of otherworldliness, something that rendered him alien in a time of cultural interest in unknown galaxies as popular entertainment.
2: Somewhere in space, this may all be
0: happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here
2: they
1: come. By the late 1970s, the pulp and sci fi of the Cold War era went from campiness to the mainstream, with George Lucas's Star Wars and Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, respectively. In 1982, Spielberg crossed over to the hearts and imaginations of children with his blockbuster (laughs) E.T.
2: The ship off, like the moon slowly rising, then away, a comet swallowed by the night.
1: Jackson read a children's storybook adaptation of E.T. for Spielberg with the help of producer Quincy Jones. More intergalactic projects came Jackson's way with the short film Captain Eo. Built as an exclusive 3D experience for Disney theme parks and directed by Francis Coppola and produced by none other than George Lucas himself.
2: We're going in. Sir, this ship is in absolutely no condition to go into battle. And I thought we'd begin by cleaning up Hooter's bunk. Rust, Hooter! Listen, the command considers us a bunch of losers, but we're going to do it right this time because we're the best. We don't we'll be drummed out of the court.
1: Just a few years later, Jackson would publish, after much anticipation, his autobiography, Moonwalk, edited by Jackie Onassis, and subsequently the film Moonwalker, a project billed as a major motion picture event.
0: He comes from a place beyond the stars, to take them to a world beyond their dreams.
1: Moonwalker, though, was really just a collection of weird-ass short films that used elements from already existing music videos for Thriller and Jackson's popular but less successful album, Bad, from 1987.
0: Now, from the imagination of Michael Jackson, comes a movie like no other.
1: One of the first videos in Moonwalker is a live performance of Man in the Mirror. The footage features many shots of overwhelmed fans fainting, overheating, and being carried out by security. Jackson postures on stage, arms outstretched, like a crucified messiah. The whole thing feels like a big tent revival. Jackson had transitioned from his alien phase to something else. The Son of Man, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The timing of this new iconography in Jackson's career makes sense because by the spring of 1987, he had formally disassociated himself as a Jehovah's Witness. According to the LA Times, an official from Jackson's Woodland Hills congregation confirmed that implications of what is called disassociation is a serious offense. The article quotes Gary Bodding, co-author of The Orwellian World of Jehovah's Witnesses, who said that dropping out of the faith is worse than being disfellowshipped or kicked out. If you willfully reject God's only organization on earth, that's the unforgivable sin, he said. The Sin Against the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, Jackson's post-thriller and bad fame opened the doors for more agilent press coverage, and each opportunity gave Jackson a window to show off a new side of himself. Not just Bubbles, his pet chimp, his collection of exotic snakes, but now his enchanting public friendships.
4: There was the friendship with, um, there was Liza Minnelli early on. Um, of course, there was Brook Shields, but in a sense... They were like, you know, child, child stars together.
1: Author, Margot Jefferson.
4: But there was Liza Minnelli, there was briefly Jane Fonda, there was briefly Katherine Hepburn, you know, always these um, impressive um, <laughs> and force field um, women.
1: There was also Sophia Loren and Jean Kelly, Diana Ross as his second motherly figure. But none of Jackson's relationships or connections to Hollywood luminaries was more forceful, kindred, or wacky than Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor and Jackson first met in 1984, several months after the death of her husband Richard Burton, the love of her life, or one of them since she was married eight times, twice to Burton. By the 80s, Taylor's fame was waning and she battled a debilitating prescription drug problem, something. That would later give her immense understanding of Jackson's plight. According to author Donald Bogle, in his book Elizabeth and Michael, the Queen of Hollywood and the King of Pop, Jackson invited Taylor to one of the final dates of his troubled victory tour. She later invited him and his pet chimpanzee Bubbles over for tea. Soon, they began talking on the phone, bonding over their shared experience of being child stars and their shared medical problems. Taylor had back and hip pain for years, and Jackson was in constant agony from the burns he suffered shooting the Pepsi commercial. They watched Disney movies, had food fights, gossiped, and showered each other with ridiculous gifts. Jackson bought her a 17-carat diamond ring and ruby-encrusted watches. Taylor bought him an elephant named Gypsy. Jackson called Taylor his mother Teresa, and she became a mother figure to him, much to the displeasure of Katherine Jackson. Taylor, who became a child star at age 12 with the film National Velvet, was Michael's connection to old Hollywood, to glamour. And Michael was her link to innocence, to relevance, and understanding in the face of an often cruel tabloid media.
4: Uh, And yes, you know, (laughs) if you think of it as world-building, or as some people might say, more crassly, social climbing, um, it's both. But, But again, it's that way he can... Archive and then you know become the architect of of, of multiple worlds and lineages. Um, you know he never renounced you know the, that world of black stars and and lineages and antecedents. Um, maybe the the crossover between Hollywood and and Broadway and and you know the sound the more segregated black world is probably Sammy Davis Jr. Um, also, both who prior to Michael Jackson was the biggest black child star and global superstar. So you know he uh, he understood all of this um, incredibly well. Then he moved moved into Hollywood and also, as you know, just enough um, into um, a musically integrated world. You know with. with ventures into what we thought of as segregated. You know, here's Slash, right? From this, from, you know, White Rock um, playing with him. Um, You know, when he's young and singing something like Ben, or even when he's singing Charlie Chaplin's Smile.
2: Smile though your heart is aching Smile
4: You know, it's like um, Pin Pan Alley, um, sentimental balladering. Um, you know he can do he can do soul music. He can do rock. He can do pop. And th- so those are all, additionally, worlds that these celebrities can um, can reside in.
1: That sense of theatricality infused Jackson not just in the production of his work, but engineering a public reaction to it. In Tara Borelli's book he writes that Jackson paid people to pretend to faint at his concerts. When Jackson won the Grammy for We Are the World, to be shared with Lionel Richie and Quincy Jones, he arranged for an actress to pretend to be a crazed fan who was to rush on the stage and frantically accost him as he accepted the award. But the actress got stuck trying to break through the crowd in the wings backstage, and the stunt failed. According to Tara Borelli's account, Upon receiving the Soul Train Award for Best R&B Soul Album by a Male Artist for Dangerous, his 1991 album, Jackson sat in the audience in a wheelchair and later performed his Best R&B Male Single winner, Remember the Time, on stage while confined to a golden throne, all supposedly from a dance injury. According to Tara Borelli's account, he later laughed off the stunt and walked around perfectly fine in front of his staff the next day. Nothing, though, could top the sleight of hand of Jackson's move to escape his family's control and watchful eye, not just in his business and artistry, but as domestic cohabitants. Back in 83, while filming Paul McCartney's video for Say, 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 Jackson was smitten with the property McCartney and his then-wife, Linda, were staying at during the filming. According to LaToya Jackson's 2012 memoir, Starting Over, published by Simon & Schuster, Michael told his sister, who acted in the video, I'm gonna own this property one day. Jackson eventually paid $19.5 million for the ranch, according to the Chicago Tribune, But other press accounts, including the LA Times, reported that he paid $28 million, a figure he did not dispute. In the spring of 1988, Jackson discreetly sent certain of his employees to his family's compound to collect items he wanted moved. By this time, Havenhurst was technically owned by Michael, who had to buy his own father, Joseph, out over the man's scattered and foolish investments a decade before. According to reporter Diane Diamond's book on the subject of Jackson, Be Careful Who You Love, days after his purchase of the ranch, his family turned on the TV and learned, along with the rest of the world, first from Entertainment Tonight, that their most cherished son had bought and moved into a distant 2,700-acre fiefdom. There he would reside with all of his ill-tempered animals surrounded by pleasure gardens, a train station depot, and a firehouse with a big red engine. In the center would hail a 30-foot statue of Mercury, the Roman god of shopkeepers, merchants, tricksters, and thieves, acting as a sentry about the carnival rides and the many speckled, winsome statues of children at play, fishing with rods, playing musical instruments, holding hands. Jackson was famously obsessed with the 1953 Walt Disney animated film Peter Pan, adapted from the J.M. Barrie play. In the story, the mystical world of Neverland, where children never grow up, is located as being the second star to the right. For Jackson, his newly christened Neverland Ranch was most importantly located more than 100 miles away from the poultry Havenhurst.
3: The second star to the right shines with a light so red. And if it's Neverland
0: you-
4: Will That's not a path you take uh, unless in some unless the materials, the symbols, the signs, the the emotional um, and and um, theatrical subtext.
1: Margot Jefferson.
4: Um, you don't do that unless it appeals to you in some deep. You know, some ongoing way. You know you, the doubling between the, um, you know the 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 kind of demon with the eyes and the everyday boy that you see in the thriller over and over and over again. You know you you saw these these double worlds uh, being being enacted. Uh, there you know also you put that together with um, Walt Disney and. You know the cultural ambition um, is so enormous. And you know, all this, this, this will um, and need to create a universe that um, not only draws on and, and appropriates, you know, and curates really um, our archives. You know, just multiple musical and dance and um, performative forms, but that, like, exceed them um, by creating itself as a kind of kingdom.
1: Back when Michael Jackson's hair caught fire on the set of the Pepsi commercial, the first to offer aid was one of his security guards, Miko Brando, Marlon Brando's son, aged 22 at the time. According to author Tara Borelli's account, Miko Brando rushed to hug, tackle, and run his fingers through Jackson's hair to extinguish the flames, giving him burns in the process. Within moments, Jackson was assisted by medical professionals. It was suggested that, to avoid the throng of fans and press outside, he should be transported through the back of the theater. Michael Jackson, though, demanded that he go through the main entrance and pass through the frantic crowd. As the EMTs prepared him for the stretcher to be wheeled out front, Jackson told them, Leave the glove on. The media is here. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates, who is absolutely marvelous on this episode. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music. Our cover art is by Jacob Sanders, and you can check out our website at telephonestories.org.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.